Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Our focus text this morning is going to be verses 6 through 9. And we will read those verses this morning together. But before we do so, join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would shine the light of your word in our hearts and in our minds and our souls, Lord, this very morning. We pray, Lord, that the illumining work of your spirit would be bright and clear, that you would expose things, Lord, that we have that are hidden, that you would encourage us in our pain and our sorrows, that you would lift us up and give us great courage to continue to run the race and fight the good fight, that you would show us Christ, our General, our Savior, our friend. O oh Lord, we pray that you would be at work in and through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Hear now the very word of God written for you and for me today. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved, the Apostle Paul's calling was to be a preacher, a pastor, a teacher, as he was an under-shepherd of Christ. And he was to feed Christ's flock with the pure milk of the word and the gospel. And Paul was faithful in carrying out his duties, wasn't he? In fact, he had such love and such zeal for Jesus and for his people that what was the predominant theme that the Corinthians knew him to proclaim? Paul had a bull's-eye focus, knowing nothing else but Christ and him crucified. May we, too, have, have such a focus and spend much time knowing and growing in knowing Jesus and his wonderful work in the gospel. Now, keep in mind, Paul fed on Christ and the rich truths of the glorious good news himself, as every preacher must, and then fed God's people the same nutritious diet of biblical doctrine. And he did so intentionally not making it the Paul show, but during his time among the saints, he didn't conduct himself as a snazzy speaker, waxing eloquent, varnishing the truth. You know, as I mentioned last week, Paul came to them not to fill the building with those who wanted their ears tickled, 
He didn't draw them in by just what he thought would be a crowd pleaser. Remember, what you bring people in with, you're going to have to keep them with. And that wasn't Paul's agenda. Paul rightly filled the pulpit according to the call and the work of God. He preached the word. He preached Christ and him crucified. For that is the doctrine among the whole counsel of God that draws and feeds and nourishes God's people. And Paul was hunger, humble and meager, wasn't he? One who the world and society would call weak and insignificant. However, this weak man's preaching of Christ, Christ's person and his work for sinners, was the means through which God the Holy Spirit worked in and through in the hearts of men and women, doing what? Demonstrating and showing forth proof of his work and power in them unto salvation. Oh, that more and more pulpits in, in faithful Christian churches today would be on fire to preach Christ and Him crucified. That our faith would be grounded in the right place, in the power of God, and not in the wisdom of men. That men and women wouldn't be trusting and resting in the rhetoric or the pomp or the circumstance or the smoke machines or the bands or whatever it is, but that their trust would be securely in Christ, that God would receive all the glory. And so considering this, Paul speaks more about coming to the saints with the, the truest and the highest wisdom, along with the reason why. And so let's consider his words about true wisdom being spoken among the mature, he says in verse 6 as well as the hidden wisdom of God in verse 7, and the reason true wisdom was hidden in verses 8 and 9. What does he say in verse 6? However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. Again, Paul declared the fullness of divine wisdom, the gospel, with an important group of people. That was his purpose. And he specifies that as those who are mature. Now, who are the mature that Paul speaks of here? Well, the Greek word literally means perfect or complete. And though some in the Corinthian church in a sectarian spirit may have tried to mark people as the elite Christians in the congregation, Paul isn't making such a delineation here. No, he is speaking of those who are well instructed in the ways of Christ. They're well instructed in Christianity. Who have grown in grace and maturity. He is speaking of those who are spiritually mature, able to rightly discern and to understand Christ and his work by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of those who would see Christ who he said before is the wisdom and power of God, and he would see his work to be true divine wisdom. Paul also called the mature in Philippi to be united in pressing on for the upward call of God and Christ, didn't he? In Philippians 3, verses 15 and 16, we read this. 
Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. So notice that spiritual maturity reveals the Spirit's work of discernment, along with the effect of His work of illumination that works toward improved and consistent and faithful obedience. And really, we see that doctrine of illumination undergirding this passage here, don't we? It's a big message here from Paul to Corinth. The writer to the Hebrews also wrote about the benefits of the diet of the mature. In Hebrews 5.14, what did they feed upon? Where did their nourishment come from? He says there, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to do what? To discern both good and evil. So my friends, the, the true wisdom, the truth and beauty of Christ in the gospel is revealed to and known by those who are of full age who have open eyes to see it, who have open ears to hear and understand and receive it. Once again, the Apostle John wrote to mature Christians for good reason, as he says in 1 John 2.14. He says, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Beloved, hear that. With growth and grace, with maturity in the Christian life, we see a growth in discernment. We see a growth in seeing and understanding the true wisdom of God. The knowledge that deepens as that happens as well. As the word of God abides in us, even as was true of these young men that John wrote to. The spiritually mature not only understand the history of Christ and him crucified, but discern the divine wisdom in the gospel. Remember, though we, what we preach is foolish to the world, it is wisdom to those whose hearts and minds have been illumined. And Paul goes on to contrast once again what the wisdom he proclaimed is and isn't in 1 Corinthians 2. And he begins with what it isn't. He says, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. See how the two groups Paul points out are, are well-defined here. The world, our, our society, clearly has a version and view of definitions and narratives and categories of insight and worldly wisdom that are of their own discovery and making. It's very true. It's easy to identify. We talked about it a lot, even in Sunday school, didn't we? 
in their pride and worldly interests. Men and women of the world craft what they pass as wisdom and make sense to them. That which they can accept. That which maybe even motivates them and gives them excitement. Makes them feel rich and important. But secondly, the rulers of this age, Paul points out. The kings and the princes, the leaders of the fallen and unbelieving world, who are the most influential in society, are the ones he has in mind here. Who have access and, and use of the wisest men around to counsel them. Those who aren't slouches in knowledge and wisdom themselves. But Paul says, the wisdom I'm speaking of isn't the wisdom of this age. It's not even of the rulers of this age, those who may well craft it, and those who may have their own version, maybe a higher, even deeper view that they would promote to those that they rule over. Remember the words of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? This is the beginning in verse 1. And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Because of all of their wisdom, of all of their desires, of all of what they think they can do, they can do none of it. They can't harm a hair, so to speak, on the living God. Because their wisdom is of nothing. Though they think it is so great. Paul says that such society and rulers can't receive the things of God. And therefore, it would be foolish for Paul to speak to the saints in Corinth, promoting that which is empty. Right? That which is even harmful. That which is anti-Christ. As though many would say their wisdom is quite something. In reality, Paul says, they're coming to nothing. They're coming to nothing. And so what wisdom does Paul then speak and preach? Look at verse 7. He says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom. Which God ordained before the ages for our glory. The wisdom of God in a mystery, beloved, once again, it shouldn't be thought of as that which only the elite Christians can understand. They're the only ones that have the key, the access, to open that mystery. Children, when you hide a toy, what do you do? When you want to be sneaky and strategic with your, your brother, your sister, your friend, what do you do? Depending on how big it is, you may hide it under your bed, you may put it in a box, you may put it in your closet or behind the door. And to hide something means that it's there, but people just can't see it. In a similar way, Paul points us to how the riches of the gospel were hidden, not out in the open, not clearly seen or understood. And that was true in the Old Testament. 
right? But they have now been revealed, right? They have, the curtain has been pulled back to see more and more by the Holy Spirit to those who have the Spirit. So they are the things of God. It is the gospel, the wonderful good news of Christ that is revealed by the Spirit to those who have the Spirit. What is hidden by God has to be made known by God. Remember that. Take that home with you. What is hidden by God has to be made known by God. And you know, in some ways, some people today may really wrestle with that idea. For we would like to be the key master. We would like to be the gatekeeper. We would like to be the one that has the power and the freedom and the ability to open the key, to flip the light switch on in somebody else's understanding. And sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we might rightly feel that when we're out evangelizing people. Why can't they see it? Why can't they understand? Why can't they believe? What is hidden by God has to be made known by God. And Paul made this clear to Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You can turn with me there if you find. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We read in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. <coughs> Keep that in mind. Paul wasn't some isolated bearer of the mystery either. God's people would understand the mystery too by the Holy Spirit working in them. But Paul was pointing this out to them, that they would know and learn more. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So here was the grand mystery that was being progressively revealed in time and made even gloriously clear in the New Testament was that Christ was bringing together his people, uniting his people together, Jews and Gentiles in the church, fellow heirs, those who were once outside of the commonwealth and without God in the world, were now brought near by the blood of Christ. Partakers of his promise through the gospel. Paul, even in his benediction and conclusion to his epistle to the saints in Rome, in Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, referred to his preaching of Christ, saying, according to the revelation of what? The mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. The mystery is known and known and discerned by God's people. We see Christ for who he is and we do not rail against him. We embrace him. We loved him for he first loved us. He came and he died for us. 
that we would have new life in him and that we would be in him and a part of him and his family, his body. But here we see that that mystery is proclaimed. It's made manifest. The light is shown on it. And so as we better understand our eyes being open to see this hidden wisdom, why does Paul speak of God's ordaining this back in 1 Corinthians 2? Why does he speak of God ordaining this before the ages for our glory? He wants us to know that this was in God's eternal plan and purpose. This wasn't just something that came about midstream. It's always been in God's plan. He also wants us to know more of the honor God has bestowed upon us in this revelation as his children. It was a great honor for the apostles to be entrusted by God to reveal this divine wisdom. And it's also a great privilege for Christians to have this glorious divine wisdom revealed to us by the apostles, the prophets, the Holy Spirit. Think about this. The wisdom of the gospel prepares us for our everlasting glory and happiness in the world to come. Matthew Henry says this. The counsels of God concerning our redemption are dated from eternity and designed for the glory and happiness of the saints. And so that is a wonderful truth that we can be thankful for, that we can praise the Lord for. In the perfect counsel of his will, in his good pleasure, in the outworking of his grace and his love to us, see what he has done. And what he is doing. And why, back in 1 Corinthians 2, why was this true wisdom hidden? Paul gives us the reason in 8 and 9. In 8a, he says, which none of the rulers of this age knew. The rulers of this age chiefly were the Roman governor and the rulers of the Jews. They had their precious wisdom. But they knew not the wisdom of God. None of them did. Both society and the leaders of it were blind and destitute of the Spirit of God. And notice that there was a God-ordained reason for their blindness. Look at 8b. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The death of Christ. His life, death, and resurrection, beloved. His great and his wonderful work for us was a part of God's plan of redemption. Everything is laid out, ordained in the providence of God and his sovereign will. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. My friends, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He was born to die and ransom many. His road to the cross was laid out from the beginning, even from eternity past. Our Lord and Redeemer in time was crucified by the demands of the Jews and the sentence of Pilate. 
We find this to be true in Luke 23. But note that the reason why they hated him was because he wasn't known. Had his crucifiers known him, and if you remember, Christ was walking around in his ministry with his disciples, proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel, words about him from others and from his own lips were clear as to who he was. But there were some who could not hear or believe because he wasn't known to them. As his, had his crucifiers known him, known who and, and what he was, they, they would have withheld their sinful hands and not have taken and slain him. Remember Jesus' words on the cross as he pleaded with the Father for their pardon in Luke 23, 24. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But know afresh. Know afresh your Savior. And indeed that this wonderful plan of redemption, his work in going to the cross to save you, to save sinners, to save his people... Know that this was all, even from eternity, that then came to pass in time. But see your Savior, who is the Lord of glory, Paul says. He is the Lord of glory, and let's be refreshed by a couple of passages in Scripture that teach us that. In Hebrews 1.3, the writer speaks of Christ being the brightness of God's glory. And the express image of his person. Jesus is the wonderful brightness. Like the Shekinah glory of God. He is the brightness of his glory in pure and true form. In a true sense. And he is the express image of his person for he is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. God incarnate. Jesus in his prayer to his Father said in John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. O our glory-filled and glorious Lord Jesus. The one possesses all glory, as does the Father, as does the Spirit. So remember, why would he make such a request in a prayer? Remember that when Jesus came and took on flesh, when it's true, he set aside his glory. But as Jesus was returning and preparing to return to the Father, he prayed that he would glorify him with the Father, with the glory that he had before the world. So Jesus is the Lord of glory, beloved, slain by, by sinful hands to fulfill God's plan of redemption for his people. But then notice that Paul goes on to quote Isaiah 64, verse 4. Wonderful verse in verse 9. He says, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 
again. For things to be known, the Lord must make them known. And the Lord does make them known. He's prepared wonderful things beforehand for us, for those whom he loves. He reveals these things. He shows these things. He brings them to fruition in reality for us. It is a wonderful thing to be loved by the living God and to be the recipients of those things that he has prepared. So the bottom line is that men and women can't know, they can't discover or stumble upon or dream up the things of God or his plans on their own. Though they would like to think that they can and they they convince themselves that they can as much as possible. But they can't. What was hidden can only be revealed by the Spirit of God. And God has made wonderful, glorious, beautiful preparations for his beloved children. Know that and believe it. The Holy Spirit marvelously shows them to us, marvelously does, in the pages of Scripture. We don't have to wonder. We have the revealed Word of God. And it is true that we don't know all that remains mystery. But what we need to know, what God wants us to know, He shows us. He reveals to us. We'll consider more of this next week, Lord willing, as Paul goes on to then speak about what this wisdom truly is and how it's been revealed to us. I'll leave you with this. Many have heard and hear the gospel, but to them it goes in one ear and out the other, remaining a mystery, remaining foolish. The wisdom of it remains hidden. But to us who believe it is the power of God, and by the illumination of the Spirit, we see Jesus, we love Him and embrace Him, and we understand the true wisdom of the gospel. We can see how He is the wisdom and the power of God, and we can see how the gospel, exactly the way the Lord laid it out in what Christ did for us from beginning to end, is truly and perfectly wise. Praise the Lord for his work of grace in us. As he did Paul on the road, removing the scales from our eyes, opening our eyes to, to see and believe in Jesus and his work. May this be an ongoing source of joy for us. But knowing that the wisdom of God is spiritually discerned should also orient and guide our expectations and conversations with people that we meet. We don't expect people to understand the person and work of Christ apart from his grace. Don't get sucked into thinking that it's about you and it's about the words that you use in strategy or craftedness of speech or other things like that. Remember the words of Paul. I don't come to you in the words and the wisdom of men. I come to you with the power of God and the gospel. The gospel is where the power is by the, by the work of the Spirit. In the hearts of his people, the Lord will move and those whom he chooses to be faithful to proclaim Impurity, that's what we need to do. But we also should remember that our God given knowledge should be cause 
for us to be even more of a prayerful people. Praying that the Lord would work in the hearts and minds of his people to open their eyes, that they too would truly see and live according to a renewed understanding. And that's, of course, true from an evangelistic standpoint and proclaiming the gospel to the lost. But it's also true as we speak of the gospel and of the truths and commands of God and scripture, even amongst the body. For sometimes we become blind as we fall into sin or for other reasons. And we need the work of God in his word to get us back and straight, bring us to repentance, confessing our sins, seeking to walk rightly according to his word, according to his law. We need these things. We need a renewed understanding. We need an ongoing renewing of our minds as they are so challenged with things from the world. So I, I pray that you would be much in prayer today and this week considering these things of God, considering Christ and the gospel, Praising him for what he has shown you, but also being prayerful and being humble in how you approach others and even in, in praying that the Lord would give you a discerning mind and an examining heart to consider your walk with him, that he would continue to renew your mind through the gospel and his word. Amen. Let's pray together.